0: That was a couple of people. Can everybody else hear me? Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I did ask for it. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a great privilege to be here and to be with you guys and um, to be able to give you God's word. For a few moments, though, before we start out, I want us all to pray because there's a lot of things going on in our country, and, and I... I you know, you, you look at some of the stuff and, and, and it's like, you know, Chad was praying about, you, you see a act that happens earlier in the week and, and as wrong as it is, you know, people, you know, is through frustration and hurt. And then, uh, you know, things come out of those things and a lot of nonsense and violence has erupted and. You look over our nation, every major city in America almost is being invaded and by people that, uh, you know, want to loot, want to, you know, do violence. And, and um, you, you know, God in his word tells us that he is the only one just and righteous to judge people. But people are taking things into their own hands now. And, um, you know, we really do need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for the people that are out there trying to protect other people. And even we need to pray for the people that are doing people harm and doing people wrong. Because God, in his infinite wisdom, and his infinite love, still loves his people. And he wants them to be reconciled to him and be redeemed. And so when I look at everything that's going on, you know, I can't help but to think, you know, God loves these people. And they need to know that he is the one and the only one that is able to administer the right justice that is needed. And so let's pray for our country. Join me over the next few moments. Let's just pray for our country and, and the people in it with everything that's been going on. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you now. We plead for the people that are just in this country that, you know, we've got all these things going on and then, you know, this one senseless act that has happened and and people are out there, some are taking advantage of it, some of them are truly hurt and frustrated and are standing up for that and Father, we just pray for these people now that the hurts the fears, the, the things that they have going on in their life, that you will comfort them. For the ones that are sitting out there that, that are responding with evil with evil, that you will work in their life to shut it down. Father, we pray for the people that are innocent in all this, that have had their lives taken away with buildings being burned, there their shops and stores, things being stolen out of it. That you will be with them. That you will be with them like you were with Job. And restore to them seven times what was taken away from them. Father, we pray for our nation as we sit here and we look at the divide that's there. The intentional divide. And I think about Satan and himself. How he must glory in everything that's going on. Through all these things, he, ha- he feels like he is getting something stirred up, and he- people are acting in his realm. Father, we just pray right now that you will start working in hearts, work in the leaders' hearts in this country, and the people's heart, to bring them back and redeem them to yourself, because that is the only true way to stop what's going on and that they will be reconciled to you and with one another it's in your name we pray father amen so as we think about today as we get into the message we're going to look at joshua chapter 7 verses 1 to 7 so if you have your phones bibles whatever you have turn to joshua chapter 1 or chapter 7 verses 1 to 7, and as we look at this, I want you to remember the statement. Because disobedience to God is detestable to Him, there is always a consequence, and that consequence is often felt by others. Because sin is detestable to God, there is always a consequence, and that consequence is often felt by others, and that is plainly seen in what we have today. So let's think about this. Were you that kid who ate chocolate when you weren't supposed to thinking that you'd get away with it? I know I was. What ended up giving it away? Probably the chocolate on our face. Your parents come in, they see it all over your face. Or that cookie when you came home from school and they told you not to get the cookie. It's written all over our face. Well, we've grown up since our toddler days and, and, you know, we look at life and we still think, you know, we can fool people at times, but as easy it was for our parents to spot chocolate on our face, giving away the evidence of what we've eaten, God sees everything and we can be confident in knowing that we can't hide anything from him. There is no way we can hide everything from God. We can't cover up antics or anything else because God's all seeing. He knows everything. And just like there are consequences for disobeying our parents, there are consequences for disobeying God. There are. As we look in, in, in the passage, let's get a little bit of insight of what's happened already. You know, Israel has just been involved, if we were looking back at the previous message, in this great military conflict in, in Jericho. They witnessed this great city had fallen, and they didn't have to do anything about it. And, and what happened is they marched around that city for 13 times over six days, and God gave them that city. When the horn blew, the walls came tumbling down, and God said to go into that city... Burn everything up except for the gold, silver, and some other items to put in his temple treasury, uh, put in the temple for the treasury. And so they could use to worship God. Those were things he had set aside for them. And, and so they were able to do that. And they thought everything was going well with them and God. However, the truth is far from that. You see, God is upset with these people, he's upset with Israel. And Israel thought everything was right. They had no clue, but as we see in their verses, that there was something going on. They thought they were standing on the edge of a great string of victories, that they would see conquering the, you know, the land of promise. They thought that they were right there. Can you not hear me? Or is that an amen? Okay, it's an amen. And they thought they were right there, and they thought they were unstoppable, But what they didn't know was there is a serious problem in their midst, and they didn't even know it. And as we read this account, you know, coming from chapter 6, if you're just to stop at chapter 6, we would not know what happens. Because it never reveals it. But as we read 7.1, we see what happens. And here it says: the Israelites. However, we're unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Camry, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. This one verse sets up the rest of the chapter with what is going to happen. You see, no one knew but Achan what had happened in Jericho. No one knew. He ends up stealing some things. It was like what happens in James 1, when temptation happens. You know, it it, it is a picture of what happens with temptation. As he was out in the city gathering that should have been silver placed in God's treasury, he ends up being tempted with greed, and he steals it, and he takes it. Achan saw that silver and thought, "This this little bit won't hurt God. This little bit right here won't hurt God. You see, the process of sin started in on him. He was tempted with the greed, and it caused him to take something dedicated to God. And he stole it, and in doing so, committed sin. And as you read the verse, you know, God doesn't just place the blame on Achan, though. He says that Israel, all of them, were unfaithful. You see, God didn't just leave the responsibility on Achan alone. He placed it on Israel, all, on its, all of them. He didn't leave it with just Achan. You know, as I read this and I start thinking, why? What, what, what is this? I come to the conclusion about one thing. Names are important in the Bible, names are very important because. What names do, at least in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is you see that names also tell you about somebody's character. It it, it works out that way. Jacob, what was his name, Jacob? He was a deceiver. If you looked at his life, he deceived people everywhere. Well, Achet, you know what his name means? Trouble. You can see it in verse 25, but his name literally means trouble. The people of Israel should have known that this guy was going to be trouble. They should have known, hey, this guy's name is trouble. His mom named him trouble for a reason. Maybe we should watch over him a little bit better. Maybe we should hold him more accountable. Maybe we should investigate him. You know, his name literally meant that. And so with a name like that, Israel should have paid closer attention to him. And they didn't. They didn't do it. And in doing so, I believe God holds all of Israel responsible for his actions. Because they didn't hold him accountable because they should have known his character. You remember when your mom or your teacher would tell you that they had eyes on the back of their heads? And now as parents, we know that's not the case. But we always were told that, you know, and they, and they never had those eyes. But they knew from us, from our experiences of what we would be doing. They just knew that. Well, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 1, 15 to 25, Ezekiel sees God. He sees a supernatural chariot and the prophet is doing his best to explain what he's seeing. And with his limited understanding in human language, he sees his will within a will this chariot. He depicts this great omnipresence of God when he sees it, and, and he sees God. And there, on these two wheels, they're set perpendicular to each other, and they're able to move without the wheels turning. You know that would be great on a car, by the way. He sees God sitting there, and he describes God as having these eyes all over him, and it is his way of saying God sees all. He knows all. God knows everything. There's no escaping. Nothing can be hidden from God and nothing can escape him. This can only be a way of encouragement. You know, it shouldn't be dreadful. It should be encouraging to know that God sees everything and knows everything. And depending on where you are in life, we bring this up because God sees everything we do. Everything that we do in the dark or in the light, God sees and God knows. And so as we look in 2 and 3, it says this, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. And returning to Joshua, they responded to him or reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. And since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all the people there. So Joshua, he doesn't know what happened. You know, he starts to plan the next conquest. He starts to plan the next logical point in taking over this whole land. You know, God says, you're going to have this land. Well, this is the next city. It's the next place in the process. It's the next one that we need to go ahead and take over. And and, and so like any good general, he goes and sends out spies. He says, I need to know what we're facing. He did that before with, with Jericho. He does it again. Like a good general, he does everything he's supposed to. And the report comes back. Hey, Jericho, uh, Jake, uh, Joshua, we don't need to send everybody in. It's a small city. Send about two, 3,000 people. We'll be all right. And, and so Joshua, what he, what he does is he goes ahead and sends it out. But what gets me, though, about Joshua is in this whole event, he never talks to God about the next move. He never says anything to God at all. He simply makes the plan and moves forward. And now I don't know that he doesn't talk to God, but it would occur to me that if he would have talked to God before he goes into AI, that God would have said, no, Joshua, you don't need to do that yet. You've got problems that you need to deal with. But instead of consulting with God, he goes in and he tries to take AI in his own strength. And you see in Joshua, he doesn't talk to God until verse 7. And we'll get to there in a few moments. And so... When I read these verses, it causes me to reflect on James chapter 4, 13 and 14, where it says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. No, he was, just, he was specific about making plans on your own, James is, without consulting God at all. He's very specific. He's saying these people in chapter four of James are going out and they're going to do business in different cities. They're going to go out and they're going to make their plans and they're going to go this city here and then they're going to go here and they're going to go here and they're just going to go about life doing whatever they want and they're never going to consult God at all in the process of all this. They're going to go out and do what they want. But life as you and I know is dangerous and one false move one false move can be fatal to not just us, but to people in our lives, to someone else. You know, we can find ourselves responsible for that, for not just our life, but somebody else's life. And we should every day begin that day asking God before everything, what do you want me to do today? Before every major event in our life, God, what do you want me to do? Before even every little thing, God, what do you want me to do? What would you like to do? We should make God a part of our planning process. Because intervening with God in our lives and letting him direct our plan is not just beneficial, but it could be a lifesaver. And it would have been a lifesaver for Israel that day. So as we get into it, four and five, we see this. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai and the men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarry, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. The people lost heart. Now, Joshua got the report from the spies. He says, we're going to send 3,000 people out. We're going to take care of the city. We're going to do it. You know, there's not a lot of men. We're able to take care of it. 3,000 should be enough. And so he sent them out. He sent them out and, you know, we'll be fine. So as they attack AI, something happened. Something happened in this little city that caused them to overwhelm the Israelites. Because the way I read it, they came in, they couldn't do anything And they end up taking off, running scared. They were being defeated. And as they were running away, it says that 36 men were picked off in the process. 36 people died in that process as they were leaving the city. And it says at the very end of the verse that these people lost heart. That means these people had become demoralized. They had become paralyzed by a spirit of fear, discouragement. They'd become fearful and lacked any more courage in their life. All because of Achan. All because of one man and one act that he did. You know, several things can make us lose heart. An embarrassing loss in a war can make people lose heart. Losing a game you should win can make you lose heart. Facing an insurmountable hill such as debt or health problems can make us lose heart. When I think of games and everything in 1916, I think about the most lopsided football game in history. It was between the Georgia Tech uh, engineers at the time, uh, Yellow Jackets now, and the Cumberland College Bulldogs. And and to to tell you a little bit about the game, it, it goes like this, Cumberland received the opening kickoff and failed to make a first down after a pop the engineers scored in the first play cumberland then f- fumbled on the next play from the line of scrimmage and a georgia tech player returned the fumble for a touchdown the bulldogs fumbled again on their next play and it took georgia tech two rushes to score his third touchdown cumberland lost nine yards on the next possession and georgia tech scored a fourth touchdown on another two-play drive see where i'm going with this georgia tech led 63 to nothing at the end of the first quarter and 126 to nothing at halftime. Georgia Tech added 50 more points in the third quarter and 42 more points in the final period. period. And, And the Cumberland players, several of them were hurt. The quarterback, he had been hit three times with concussions and was not playing too well, obviously. You know, Georgia Tech scored all 32 touchdowns on rushes. You know, in the left end, James Freitz, he kicked 18 extra points. You don't see that today, but he did. You know, in all of this, in all of this, Georgia Tech put on the points for a reason. You see, earlier that spring, Cumberland and Georgia Tech played baseball. And Georgia Tech had a decent baseball team, but Cumberland brought in some professional athletes, apparently, and used beating Georgia Tech. Cumberland said, we're no longer gonna play football this coming season because we don't have a team. And they got every other team on their schedule to refuse to play the games with them and cancel those games, except for one team, Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech wanted revenge. They wanted to get back at them. They wanted to give them an embarrassing loss, much like what they did with them on the baseball field. One sports writer wrote, That Cumberland's greatest individual play of that game occurred when fullback Allen circled around the right end for a six-yard loss. At halftime, Heisman, who was a coach of Georgia Tech, replied to his players with this. He said, you're doing all right, team. We're ahead, but you can't tell what those Cumberland players have up their sleeves. They may spring a surprise. Be alert, men. Hit them. Hit them clean, but hit them hard. However, even Heisman relented and shortened the game in the third and fourth quarter. And my point in all this is, much like victories build momentum, devastating defeat, zap it all away. I mean, you look at the end of the first quarter, there's no fight left in Cumberland. There's probably not much fight left after the first two or three plays of the game. Momentum zapped away. It's just taken away. And it demoralizes Israel's momentum had been zapped away and they're demoralized. They have lost heart. And this we see in Joshua 6 and 7, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. So they're all finally coming in talking to God. And they put the dust on their heads. They're mourning because of this. And oh Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. And I want to fill in the gaps for you of what else happens. And so Joshua says this to God and God ends up telling Joshua what happens. And so... Joshua, in response to that, is told by God, you're going to find this person out. We're going to go through the system, and if he doesn't confess to who he is, well, you're go- we're going to find out who he is. We're going to- they're going to go through, and God eliminates all these different people, and he throws it down to Achan. And what happens with Achan is all of Israel around there takes stones and stones him to death. But they just don't stone him. They stone his entire family. And they just don't take him and his family. They take everything that they possess, except for the silver they stole. They take it and put it back out. They destroy everything Achan had. But Joshua, at this point, you know, he is coming to God. And he's trying to find out. He was stunned. He was bewildered and confused. He's shaken and he's utterly dumbfounded. And he's shocked over the defeat of Israel and the soldiers and he he and the other leaders went to the tabernacle and sought the Lord in prayer they're asking questions they fell down on their face and asking things like God why did you do this if you wanted us to take all this land why would we be defeated he, you know Joshua didn't know the reason why yet but he knows that God who had been faithful to him all these years was the only one that could reveal the answer God is the only one that can reveal the answer. After all, in a general sense, the campaign of attacking and conquering the land was God's plan, and Joshua knew that. So God's the only one that's going to be able to tell them why this happened. And he seemed to blame God for the defeat. He didn't even consider that it wasn't God, but it was something else that might have caused them to lose. And his greatest concern was that this defeat is going to give God a bad name and Israel a bad name. And that God could no longer be glorified. But God couldn't be glorified in all this because of the sin of Achan. He could not. And it had to be dealt with. You know, I've found in life that when we like to blame God for a lot of things, we don't like taking responsibility for ourselves. We don't like doing that. We tend to jump the gun and start asking, why God? And we fail to look all around us. We fail to look around ourselves and ask God the right, the right question. I found this cute little citation from the Christian uh, parenting today by a woman in Warsaw, Indiana. And she says this, she says, My husband and I were always talking to our son about this wonderful thing that God's done for us. And we ask him questions like, who, you, you know, we tell our son this. We tell him, you know, we try to instruct him, uh, our son as well, about, you know, all the things that God's done for us. And, and, and one of the things we did was we said we'd ask who made the sun, who made the rain, and, and, and they you know, tell him God did. Well, one evening as they looked at the toys scattered on the floor and they asked their son, who made this mess? The little boy, without even thinking, said, God did. You see, we like to try to blame God for all the stuff. And we fail to look around our own lives. We fail to look at maybe even somebody close to us and maybe something they've done. You know, when we see sin... God's desire for us is to make it right with him and move forward and continue in victory. His desire wasn't for Israel to lose at AI. His desire was for them to get the sin right, then go to AI and defeat it. And that's what happens. But we have civil laws that we're under today. And if you go to the store and you steal something and get caught, God can forgive you. But the law demands you be placed in jail or pay a fine. You know, you don't want to go to jail that don't steal. That's pretty simple, right? So spiritually speaking, you may be at a place where you've messed up and you've blown it. And you know it. And the fact is, there are probably others around that know it too. And the thing about it is, it's not just feeling ashamed that others are going to find out. But whether anyone knows it or not. But rest assured, God does. God does. God knows it. And 1 John 1, 1.9 tells you the remedy. Remember Jesus died on the cross. And 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if you confess to God your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. It, it, it's, it's, that's, a, that's wonderful. If they had just confessed to God what they had done, Achan might not have been stoned. Achan could have been forgiven. But because they let it go so far, God has no other choice. <clears throat> now, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, because we have confessed Jesus Christ. And there are natural consequences that result from our decisions sometimes. But let the consequences come from God, let them come from him. Let's not take actions ourselves. Let those consequences come from God. You know, the Lord's not done with us yet. Some of us might have things in our lives that we need to get forgiven by god but let's get it straight and then move on because god's not done with you that's the beautiful thing about restoration it is forgiveness reconciling with god and then restoring you so that you can be used by him so that you can go back and that's what you see happen israel's restored to god and they go on the march to go take the promised land they're able to go out and have one victory after another after another. And once the nation purged the sin from their camp, they were able to go on and win more battles. And you see that in Joshua 8. And and so remember what I said, because God hates sin, because disobedience to God is detestable to him, there's always a consequence. And that consequence is often felt by others. God loves us and wants us to do his will. And when we don't, there's a price. There's always a consequence. And that consequence is often always involving other people. And when I think about all that, for no other reason for me is to protect other people. To do what God says. To protect others. You know, we live in a nation right now where this whole thing, this whole message that I just thought about, that, that, that I preached, I'm just thinking... Well, what if the nation heard something like this? You know, we see the results of sin and the consequences of it. And it is not just affecting one person. It is affecting, I'd say, millions of people right now. All because of one sin. One sin. One sin has bred other sins. And it's breeding others and others. And there is a payday one day. But it'd be more comfortable for me to know that God's doing the paying back rather than people taking it in their hands. So as you sit there and you think about this, please remember our country. Please remember people that you love. Please remember those that you love as well that you know God wants to restore them to himself. You know, let's close in prayer and let's pray to God to reconcile and restore people to their lives. (laughs) <laughs> all right let us pray dear heavenly father as i sit here and think about you and i i think how you dealt with israel how you dealt with achan how you dealt with joshua and i look all around i can't help but to see the same exact stuff that god there is a price for every every sin there's a consequence. And that consequence is not just felt by one person, but it's often felt, and most of the time felt, by other people. And in many cases, other people suffer a tragedy because of it. And I see that going on now in our country. I pray, Father, that with that specific knowledge of what you've shared, that you would bring people back to you, that that there would be a confession of sin to you, that you will reconcile and restore people to you, and so that we can move forward and go on. And Father, for those that are sitting out here in their lives, that they see this whole cycle in their life, I, I pray, Father, for them that You know, the consequences that they're facing now, even though that they have been restored to you, that you will ease those consequences, if at all possible, and that you will be able to let them share that story with others to show them that there is possible reconciliation and restoration with you because you love them. We thank you and we love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We thank you guys for being here. We love you. there is, uh, if you go out that way, they'll have the offering out. Um, we're working on ways to get it back in church, so be posted. There'll, there'll be some information coming soon. Thank you so much for being here. Go enjoy the day with your family. Go have fun. Go swimming. Get cold. It'll be a great day to do all that. Thank you, guys. <laughs>